0: Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard.
1: I was always a dreamer. I always saw a life beyond the life that I had as a child. It was like a big flashing light. This is what you're supposed to do. Everybody poo-pooed the idea. Network said it couldn't be done.
0: You're in that zone. And it's that out-of-body experience where it just, everything clicks.
1: Sometimes you have those dark moments. I was so depressed when I got fired. I was so
0: mad. People don't need to be afraid to fail. And again, that, that's where you learn. You don't, shouldn't be afraid of adversity. You know, that, that is the thing
1: that, that makes you strong. This is Jerry Levias.
0: This is Jody Martel. This is Chi-Yun.
1: This is Dick Vitale, and you listen to American Achievers.
0: Welcome to American Achievers, the podcast that celebrates ambition, commitment to excellence, risk-taking, and tenacity on the road to success. I'm Keith Dunavant. Some of my guests are world famous. Some are rather obscure. Our weekly lineup includes entrepreneurs, athletes, military heroes, civic leaders, artists, and media figures. What they all have in common is a sense of undeniable purpose and an intriguing story that reflects the power of the American dream. Here's part two of my interview with Bill Rasmussen. We're talking about the birth of ESPN. When did the germ of the idea evolve from New England area sports to a national sports channel?
1: I can tell you almost exactly to the minute, it was August 16th, 1978. Uh, it's my daughter's birthday, her 16th birthday, and she was working in a hotel, a summer job down in Ocean Grove, New Jersey. And Scott and I were driving down for her birthday party and got stuck in a traffic jam uh, on Route 84 near Waterbury, Connecticut. We had been, you know, hassling and and really just kind of wondering, what ifing, you know, what what about this, what about that, what can we do, and as we're stuck in the traffic jam, Scott fell asleep and he woke up at one point we've been talking about it and he said, I don't know, play football all day for all I care. So I why not play football all day? Well, it isn't really football, but who do you have to talk to to talk about college football? You have to talk to the NCAA. So that's what started it. And we, that was August 16th when we got back that night from going down to the birthday party. Uh, uh, the following Monday, I called John Toner, the athletic director at the University of Connecticut, and said we had this, because he had already agreed to these demonstration games, and I said, we've got this expanded idea. And he said, well, I think you should talk to, uh, you know, we want to do NCA sports. He said, well, you're going to have to get to the TV committee and to Walter Byers and so on. He said, but... Uh, Bo Coppage, the uh, Captain Bo Coppage at the U.S. Naval Academy, is the chairman of the TV committee, and we're having the Navy's playing here in Connecticut for the first time in I don't know how many years in September. He said, why don't I just talk to Bo, and you guys can get together before or after the game and see what happens, and so Coppage agreed to, to meet. We met before the game in early September. And he said, "You know what? You got to come out and talk to the boys." He said, "You got to come to our our next meeting is October. Our next TV committee meeting is October fifteenth. Why don't you all come out?" He was a great southern gentleman. Why don't you all come out and meet some of the boys? And the boys were Daryl Royal and Eddie Crowder and Sid Dempsey and you know names that I that I knew. And these were that this was pretty pretty heady stuff for me. But I said, "This is great." So we went to that TV committee meeting and. They invited me back for another one. And our goal was to get to Walter Byers. And finally, in a meeting on January 25th, 1979, in the midst of my saying something to the presentation to the entire 10 man committee, Walter Byers walked in the back door and just sat down, didn't say a word, didn't ask any questions. And so I continued. And all of a sudden, he just stood up and said, How do I know? How do we know? this isn't just some fishing expedition that you're on just to get to use our name. And I said, Mr. Byers, you name the, you designate your bank and on July 1st, uh, we will deposit half of whatever contract we agree to. And that was that. Meeting ended and the two guys that were with me from Getty Oil, who we had been talking to at that point about uh, becoming our major investor, said why on earth how could you say such a thing what's going on I said well it's only January we'll have the money by July 1st certainly and that was irrefutable logic except they didn't think so and uh, that was on January 25th and on February 14th St. Valentine's Day I was in Kansas City when Getty Oil called and said we're going to go ahead and finance you and Walter Byers agreed with that with their money in hand he agreed to a Contract and they put that contract together in record time. And on March 1st, 1979, we signed the contract with the NCAA. All I remember about all of those things, I remember all the specifics about various calls and meetings, but all I can really remember about was getting on airplanes. I've flew back cross country three times in that stretch in 10 days. And it was a frantic, but a really, really exhilarating time because, you know, here we were. We're gonna be sponsored. We've got a transponder, we'll be able to pay for it. And we're gonna put this idea on the air and you know, all of the announcements that we made, everybody poo-pooed the idea. Network said it couldn't be done, no there weren't enough sports around to fill 8, seven hundred and sixty hours, which is a full year of twenty four hours a day. Um and but we didn't heed any of that. We just plowed ahead and said, We can do it and obviously in September 7,
0: 1979 we went on the air. Getty Oil is instrumental in your story. Why Getty?
1: Well, they we had we had come up with a, a small investment firm in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania that agreed to work with us. I had done uh, living in Connecticut. The property that I was living at uh, it was a condominium community and The, uh, whoever the developers were, had fallen on hard times. And so they had sold the company to Fidelity Investments in Philadelphia. And one of the gentlemen from Fidelity Investments had left and started a small company of his own called KS Sweet. His name was Ken Sweet. It was KS Sweet Associates. And he brought a couple of friends with him. And so they realized that I was living in the community and they asked me if I could get some hockey players maybe to play in a tournament and bring some attention and invite some other folks in and they could show off their newly acquired property. And so I did that. Uh, that was in 1977, 76, 77. When I was working with the whalers and, um, so I, on a, on a long shot, I just said, well, these guys invested here in the community. Why don't I, I'll just give them a call. And so I called one of the associates that I knew. And told him my my this crazy idea, and I needed to find somebody with some deep pockets that could help put this whole thing on you know on a solid path forward. And so I talked for about I don't know ten or twelve or fifteen minutes, and he didn't say a word. And I stopped, and he said, "Can you call back in the morning? I want you to talk to this gentleman at nine o'clock." And so I called back and met a gentleman on the phone by the name of J. B. Doherty, and he said, tell me what you told Tom. So I repeated the whole thing again, 10, 12 minutes, whatever it was. And he said, can you come down here tomorrow morning? So we flew down you know, from Hartford to uh, Philadelphia. It's a very short flight. So we, we flew down and they said, well, here's, here's what we do. Here's our business. We'll help you put together a more coherent business plan and we have probably a half dozen or so potential investors uh, that we represent that might be interested. So we went through uh, seven of them over the next several you know, weeks. And uh, it was a Friday night December in December of 1978. I had been down to the Naval Academy visiting with Bo Coppage again on television. I was trying to keep that television idea alive. I remember it was raining. It was nasty when I got back to the airport. Friday night, I was flying home, and it it had to be, let's see, it had to be December 5th, I think. And as I left the Naval Academy, I called J.B. Doherty and said, you know, here's where we are. They're ready to go, but we need to have some money to make this thing go forward. And we had already gone through all these other folks. He said, you know, I'm not so sure we're going to make this happen now, but we've got one one more for you. He said, we've we just been engaged by Getty Oil to help them sell a hotel in Hawaii. And he said, and I think maybe they've got some other ideas. Uh, the, the fellow in their non-oil division that they're talking to um, has entertained the idea of listening to you. And could you be out there Monday morning? So I said, sure, of course I can. So I flew home Friday night, got a plane Sunday, flew to Los Angeles, and uh, stayed at the local hotel, local Marriott Hotel. There was a fire in the middle of the night. I barely got to sleep. And we were all out in the parking lot, and I was off to make this last-ditch, last-gasp effort uh, on getting an investor. And it turned out I did that with about two hours sleep, I guess. Went to see the uh, stewart e v that morning, and we talked about it. And from de- that was December 8th, and by February 14th, St. Valentine's Day, to- a little over two months later, they agreed to finance ESPN. And when people ask me, they say, "Well, how how do you finance? How did you ever finance ESPN?" My quick answer is. A nine thousand dollar credit card advance and one hundred and forty five million dollars from Getty Oil. That's what they all put in to make it work.
0: You had to have a partner to go any further, right?
1: Oh, ab- absolutely. There, I did, we had there was no way we had the financial resources to to make it happen. We had to have a big
0: partner. And you gave up eighty five percent to Getty.
1: Yep. Yes, indeed. Again, it's just we had to have the money, so you know they they can write the they can write the. Write the rules, so to speak.
0: In time, they're going to force you out. Yep. Do you regret giving them eighty-five percent?
1: Oh no, no. It was, that uh, that I hear that question a lot. And entrepreneurs hate to give it up, hate to give up such big chunks of money. But the alternative, we there were two choices: give up a big chunk of it—sixty percent, sixty-five, eighty-five, whatever it is. Uh, And we had a little side benefit from that that I'll tell you in a minute, but uh, the alternative was we go out of business, and there is no ESPN, and I'm starting all over again. And we, we believed it was going to be viable enough and big enough that any deal that we made, no matter what we had to give away, we would come out all right, and it turned out that was the case.
0: Thanks for joining us on American Achievers. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to access our exclusive premium content, visit us at AmericanAchievers.us or search for American Achievers at Patreon.com. For a few bucks a month, you get to access our monthly email newsletter, the monthly American Achievers Extra audio program, and the quarterly Zoom show, American Achievers Green Room. Where you get to interact with one of our accomplished and intriguing guests. For details, visit AmericanAchievers.us and click on the premium membership button. Want to learn about my eight books, including biographies of Paul Bear Bryant, Joe Montana, and Francis Gary Powers? Visit KeithDonovant.com or your favorite bookstore. My latest, Speed The Life of a Test Pilot and the birth of an American icon. It's all about Bob Gilliland and the development of the super-secret SR-71 Blackbird spy plane. Now back to the program. Let me ask you the classic entrepreneur's question. Was it about the money or proving your idea?
1: Well, I think it was proving the idea. I mean, obviously the money is, is a factor, but um, without the money, there is no opportunity. I mean, the opportunity is there, but if we can't finance it, the idea is still a viable idea. And by that time I was so committed and we had talking to the uh, NCA and Walter meeting Walter Byers and making all of those things happen. Uh, it was just a, it was probably the most exciting time that I could ever imagine happening as I think back now to forty years ago that was that was just uh, I, it, it couldn't have been a better time. I was exhausted, I was uh, nervous, I was accelerated. I was flying back and forth across the country, but we were making progress and I, uh, each time I met another cable operator of the big cable companies. Uh, it got easier and easier because they, whoever I was meeting would have already talked to somebody that heard a little bit about the idea. And, and it was just, uh, it was each day was building to some sort of a great climax. And I knew that we would end up getting on the air and that it would, I, I, everybody, not everybody, but sports fans, there are just millions and millions of sports fans, Northeast, Southwest, young, old, rich, poor. No matter where you go, you can find sports fans. And it just, it became a passion and it was a a mission eventually. And I enjoyed every step of the way. Were there scary moments? Of course. But um, I I guess it was really, to answer your question, it was really the journey. And then the money came afterwards when when we had to sell our, didn't have to sell, but we had a choice of, By that time, uh, Texaco had acquired Getty Oil, so it was Texaco making some decisions.
0: One of the key mileposts was your decision to buy a piece of land in Bristol, Connecticut. Why Bristol?
1: Interesting. uh, We we were renting space in Plainville, Connecticut, and as the idea, the momentum for the idea grew, we were getting more and more uh, national coverage, regional coverage, and so on. And the idea back then, you know, the satellite was really just underway, uh, satellite technology distribution. And the city council in Plainville saw some pictures of these dishes that we were going to have to use, our, our uplinks and so on, and what people would have to put at their houses to receive the program. And they passed an ordinance, which today would be illegal, I'm sure, because of freedom of information and so on uh first amendment they told us they we could not put a satellite dish within the city limits of plainville connecticut and plainville happens to be right next to bristol connecticut so the um the cable the cable company united cable had the same problem that we did they couldn't put a receiving dish there either but they could put a microwave receiver on top of their building because it was much smaller. And so they had gone to Bristol, Connecticut to find and see if they had any land available where they could, um, where United Cable could put some sort of a receiving satellite dish and then repeat that signal and send it to uh, their headquarters and their head end in Plainville. So the same guy that had told me to call RCA many months before said, you know, we found this redevelopment area. It's, uh, four, it's five acres divided into four lots. And we bought just a little edge of one of them. Why don't I give you the name of the attorney and see if it makes sense for you to put your satellite dishes over there. So we called, we called Bristol. They were delighted to have us. And eventually we ended up buying the remainder of that first piece of land that, uh, United Cable had their microwave set up on. And, uh, then we bought the one next door, and then we bought the other two that were left. And from starting with one acre today, it's 123 acres. The campus has grown dramatically. But uh, And as it turned out, when we put up our first building, Jim Dovey, the fellow from United Cable, ended up moving his microwave receiver and transmitter to the top of our buildings, feeding, feeding United Cable in Plainville. So it was really that Plainville chased us out by not allowing us to have our, our uh, satellite dishes there. And as a result, they lost, lost a, a ton of tax money because ESPN is now firing away the biggest employer in, in Bristol, Connecticut. And they're a very, very good corporate and community
0: member. As you move toward launch, Basic Cable was still in its infancy. And big national advertisers were still reluctant to spend money on cable. Tell me about your business plan.
1: We thought that a penny a day for 24 hours of sports was pretty good, pretty good deal. And then we would put some advertising in it. So we started off talking about $0.30 cents per subscriber per month. And uh, we would give the uh, local cable operators lots of availabilities to sell local advertising that was the that was the theory when we introduced 30 cents the cable industry basically laughed at us and said that's ridiculous we can't we can't do that um, so we ended up I, I had known a fellow in the advertising business in Massachusetts who I did not know where he I knew he moved and turned out he moved to Houston Texas and he was running a cable system small cable system and so I went down to see him and talked to him about it and he said yeah my Compatriots will never pay 30 cents he said but we could you, you, you know you ought to, you can charge something so we ended up we made a deal with him and said let's let's get you off on the right foot and we can if we can use your idea and we took it to the rest of the cable industry and when we started we charged 2.4 cents per subscriber per month and you still got the advertising availabilities and it stayed that way with that 2.4 cents until, um, I guess, late 1979 or early 1980, Chet Simmons had come from the broadcast side at NBC. was the NBC vice president for sports uh, when we hired him. And they paid, the network's pay affiliates at that time. I don't know what it is today. So he thought we should pay the affiliates pennies instead of them paying us pennies. So he changed the, they changed the whole thing. And then later on, they got back. They were uh, mid-80s. I don't remember which president reinstituted uh, cable fees. But they came back, and instead of being two and a half cents, you know, they got up to over $9 per month per subscriber after many, many years.
0: But advertising was the big payoff. You went after one big advertiser and sealed a landmark cable ad deal.
1: Indeed. It was easy to identify that Budweiser was the biggest sports advertiser. And the theory was that if we presented a program to them that was very attractive, uh, give them exclusivity and so, so on, that it would be the most natural thing in the world uh because they wanted to be number one in sports and i think maybe to this day they're still number one in sports among the beer advertisers or maybe all all categories i don't know but uh, so we went and made the presentation and went to new york and in our wisdom we had somehow or other concocted an idea that two million seven hundred and eighty thousand times eight would give us enough money to run the network where we came up with that number keith i have no idea so we but didn't bother us we went to new york presented it to uh, uh, budweiser's advertising agency and the gentleman received the, the word and said well you know we obviously are interested in sports we don't know where it's all going and we don't know if you're going to make this and et cetera et cetera but i'll take it to the brewery he said so he went to st louis with the idea and said, you know, I'll get back to you. So a few days later, we heard, and, come on down. So we went down and he said, we'll give you $500,000. Now, remember, we only had about $30,000 in the business and at this point and some advances from our investment friends in uh, king of Prussia. And we said we, we couldn't accept $500,000. We thought about it for a day and we told him we couldn't accept that. And we and when we were sitting in his office, we were looking at the Miller ad right over his shoulder out the window on another building in New York City. And he said, uh, I understand. So he said, Let me go back to the brewery again. And he came, did it, came back, and said, We'll give you 50 percent, one million three hundred eighty thousand dollars, uh, annually, and had to be exclusive, which is fine. And sure enough. We went on the air, and there was Budweiser, and that produced some funny events along the way, but Budweiser bought in early, and they had been a loyal advertiser. It was a $1,380,000 the first year, $5 million the second year, and $25 million the third year. I was long gone by then, but they just kept investing money, and I have no idea what they pay today, but that at the time, that was the biggest ever uh, cable advertising deal.
0: You're listening to American Achievers. Stay tuned for more conversation. Obviously, you were launching a business. A business built on what was then a radical idea, that there was an appetite across the country for a 24-hour sports channel. Did you understand that you were also helping give birth to an industry?
1: Absolutely, because the cable industry was really it was it was it was worse than being a second cousin to the broadcast industry. It was they they were they were scoffed at, they were laughed at, uh the, the networks, the three networks felt and, and were in a superior position. They didn't think that we could produce a football game. They didn't think that we could, you know, any of the other, any other, uh, CNN, they were not very happy with, uh, 24 hour news network. They, you know, we just didn't, they felt, we didn't know what we were talking about, that we didn't understand the market, that we didn't know there were, you know, there was no need to be on the air between one, uh, one and seven o'clock in the morning. If you recall back in those days, at one o'clock, every every station in America signed off because the networks were were done. They they did not do programming between uh, one and seven in the morning. They put up a test pattern. That's all that was there. And we were saying we're going to do it 24 hours a day, and they're saying nobody watches TV 24 hours a day. And we thought that that was just their New, New York myopia. They were just they were so it was so insular. They were sitting in New York and saying, well if if we sign off and stop watching television at one o'clock, the whole country does. Well, it wasn't true. They, they, I mean, there were people who would watch in the middle of the night. There were all kinds of things that could happen. And we, we, we were talking about what would ultimately become nationwide. We were talking four time zones, and then it became worldwide. So it was obvious that, that 24 hours a day made sense. They programmed about... Uh, with the uh, football games that you mentioned earlier and Bill Fleming and uh, all the other shows, uh, Wide World of Sports and so on, uh, about 13 to 1,400 hours total between them in one year. And so here we we're saying 8,760 hours are going to do it all, nothing but sports. Because their vision didn't see enough sports available to do more than what they were doing and they had to cater to a lot of different audiences. They didn't do very many, very many hours each, as you pointed out. They a football game a week on ABC. And so it seemed, it seemed to us it made perfect sense. I, I think that's the, the, the belief that I, when you, when you talk about it, believing that there were more fans interested and that there were, there were people who worked all night and came home and could watch the news and the sports news in the morning. There are people who got off work at 11 o'clock at night. You think of nurses and doctors and security people and whoever else. There are people who are awake at 3 in the morning who could enjoy watching something.
0: Years ago, Chris Berman told me about the letters he received in those early days. Yes, letters (laughs) from people who told him they watched him in the middle of the night while feeding a child or whatever. And it blew his mind.
1: Yep, it was. It was an amazing experience, and uh, lots of folks early on snickered. Some laughed out loud. I remember going into Daniel's TV and two people there, Gene O'Grady and Tom Johnson. I remember their names 40, from 40 years ago. They openly laughed. They said, you've got to be kidding. You're not serious. You can't really do this. You know, There just aren't enough sports. Who's going to pay for this? And I saw them years later, and they said, oops, we were wrong. But it was a good story, <laughs> as it turns out, because they uh, they understood they they watched and grew and they grew. You know, all of these cable systems made a lot of money from ESPN as it became the leader, and then they they took ESPN, and CNN, and then uh, MTV and the Weather Channel. They all you know it all started to spin out in the in the
0: seventy nine eighty period. You're an old sportscaster. And you invented SportsCenter. Tell me about the genesis of that signature program.
1: Well, I think every sportscaster in America would like to have more than the three and a half minutes that they get. When back in, I, it's, I don't. It's not as much today. It's not as rigid today as it was then. All of the networks, stations, and or the affiliates had half-hour news blocks, and and they sports guy got five minutes the weather guy got five minutes etc and so after you do the intro and you do a one minute commercial which was standard in those days uh you had about three and a half minutes to do sports well any local market produces more sports news than three and a half minutes so you were forever in a in a hurry and forever trying to get as many as you could and no matter what you did you couldn't get in everything and Almost every night, somebody would call and say, you know, this big game in wherever it was. And you couldn't, you didn't even mention the score. Well, we didn't, either somebody didn't report it or we didn't have time or whatever. And so in 1976, I had experimented when I was working with the Whalers, I did a 30 minute sports show on a local TV station called Sports Only. And the idea was that this was going to be 30 minutes. No world news, no weather or anything. This was all about sports, and uh, we did that in Hartford. It was a Hartford station just locally, and so that gave me the feeling I could do more than three and a half minutes, but in Hartford, there were really not enough sports to support doing a whole half hour, and we didn't have the facilities to bring in, like now ESPN is in touch worldwide with all the. Uh, you can say the highlight It can happen now and one minute from now it can be on the air because of the satellite transmission. We could not do that in those days. So I had to rely on just local sports and Hartford just didn't have enough. Um, and so that show didn't last very long, but it gave me an idea because people reacted to it. I've had people, I had somebody come up to me just a couple of weeks ago and ask the question. I was in, uh, I was in Connecticut at a, an event and somebody said, was that you that did sports only back in, you know, and I said, you remember sports only? And I was surprised. And the, this guy who would, yeah, he said, I thought that show should have stayed on the air. Well, it didn't. It became, I said it became sports center. And that's really, that's really what happened. We just, I, I thought that we needed some, a half hour of sports would be enough to, at least cover a wide variety of information. And I remember somebody arguing with me and saying, that's just silly because you've got ABC, NBC, and CBS all do news at 6.30, and they have 93% of the audience. I said, well, we'll take the other seven. And that ended the conversation because why not? Why wouldn't we take the other seven? And eventually sports center, well, even today, sports center's still a signature program. I, I think the toughest thing was to sell the idea that, that you could have one channel support something 24 hours a day. And once once that idea kind of got through, then became a runaway freight train, really. Uh, schools were clamoring to get on the air. I know through the 80s when we were doing basketball, starting uh, that summer, uh, the spring of the 79-80 season, with the basketball ending uh and that grew to the point where schools were calling Tom jackson was the basketball coordinator and scheduler and they were calling him wanting to get on the air and he said i just don't have the time and one night he flippantly said to one coach look if you want to be on it you're gonna to have to play at midnight that's the only thing you can do and so the guy said fine when can we do that so all of a sudden midnight became a time slot for a basketball game from playing out you know, in uh, California or Hawaii or anywhere, anywhere west. And then Midnight Madness became a thing and that they, they merchandised that idea. And last basketball season, they did 5,000 live basketball games on all their platforms. It just, it just exploded. And it's all because fans are everywhere. As I said earlier, it's just, uh, you know, you they have problems during the day. They have work wins and lo- losses. But I think I'm home moment, watch if you're in Seattle and the Seahawks are your passion. There's news about the Seahawks all day now on radio and television. And if it's Miami or Chicago, wherever it might be. Uh, and the hours, the multiplying of the network from 24 with with the mothership, and then now ESPN two and the ESPN News, and it just went on and on. And then technology advanced, and we've got ESPN Plus uh, and all of the other ways to receive news about your teams. Um, I'm, I guess, if anything, I'm astounded at. The numbers. I, I guess one way, if you, if, you, if you compare sports to politics, there are a lot more sports fans than there are people who vote in the country, probably. And maybe all of the people who vote in the country are a fan of something, of one sport or another. But uh, it is—it's pervasive. Everywhere you go, you can find people talking about their team or their. Player and they might be complaining or they might be praising, but at least they're aware. And it's, uh, it's it's bigger than anything I think anyone ever imagined. The most significant thing to me when we went on the air, and this is this is a time frame thing, we did not have a single computer. The most advanced thing that we had was the IBM, the latest Selectric typewriter. And they typed scripts on those. And now today, of course, everything. So we were we were kind of almost um, archaic on the ground with not even a computer, but sending a signal around the world, around our world here in North America off a satellite.
0: You had some technical problems on launch day. What are your memories of that day?
1: Yeah, well getting getting to getting to the point of getting on the air was really kind of interesting, and we were we were still recording little pieces. I did a piece up in a up in a uh big lift uh, construction lift and talking about pointing at satellite dishes and all that stuff and we did different promo pieces, but we wanted to demonstrate in that first hour on the air because we had advertised seven o'clock eastern time that night. We walked around the building, we got there in the morning and it didn't look like we were gonna be anywhere near. We had finished the studio, but we hadn't finished, we had not finished the control room and we knew it wasn't gonna be finished. So we had already hired a remote truck to be parked out back and we would do this. We like doing a remote football game only we were doing it from in the studio. So as the day unfolded, the, uh, last minute everything was being put together and we wanted to check and we wanted to demonstrate how we could do from Bristol, Connecticut, we could talk to any place and Chuck Fairbanks had been the coach of the Patriots, coach of the Patriots for a while and he was back in Colorado and we had him on the field in Boulder, Colorado and he was supposed to talk about this is great and you know all those things and at like 6.50 everybody verified that the audio and video were all fine and when we went on the air to to demonstrate that, we got to that segment and, and we could see him, but we couldn't hear him because the audio failed. And that was kind of a a downer, but we finally got the audio. And so everybody said, wow, this is, this is pretty interesting. Even people, not people working there, but people we invited as guests that night were pretty amazed that we could watch Chuck Fairbanks out there and hear him and all of those, all of those good things. And, We try to demonstrate a a wide variety of things, including our very first conversation with uh, anybody from the NCAA on the air. Bill Flynn from Boston College was the chairman of the TV committee at that point. I'm sorry, the president of the NCAA at that point. And um, Lee Leonard, the host, asked him about a postseason tournament. When are we ever going to get to that? And I can remember Bill Flynn saying, well, you know, that's, that's tough because we have real good relationships with 12 bowls. You know, we do 12 bowl games every year. I think today they do about 40. And he said, you know, maybe someday we'll get around to doing a postseason championship, but not any not in the foreseeable future. And then the other thing on the opening night that I really remember that really stood out was our very first live event from Louisville, Kentucky. It was the... First game of the 1979 World Slow Pitch World Series, Slow Pitch Softball Championship, and when Lee Leonard went to the announcer, and I don't remember his name, but at 7:30 we went to him, and whoever he was said, you know, welcome to Louisville and tonight's ESPN's first live broadcast of tonight's slow pitch the uh, world series championship between the Kentucky bourbons and the Milwaukee Schlitz brought to you by Budweiser. <laughs> and everybody looked at each other and said, Oh boy. And standing right next to me was the gentleman that had, we had talked to way back in the spring about <laughs> uh, that $500,000 deal. It turned out to be the million three hundred eighty thousand. And he kind of looked at me and as much as to say, I thought we bought exclusivity and I, I tell the story, I wish I'd been quicker on my feet. I should have said, you should have had a better uh, softball team. <laughs> and it wouldn't have, wouldn't have caused the problem. But it was, it was a, there were tense moments, uh, but it went off without a hitch, other than, other than losing uh, Fairbanks Audio at the top of the show. The amazing thing,
0: looking back on that time, was that people were so hungry for sports that they tuned in to watch slow-pitch softball and Australian rules football and many other obscure sports. Yeah, we we had quite
1: a variety. We did Irish hurling, you may recall. It was a sport which I still don't understand, but it's very popular in Ireland. Uh, we did badminton. We did pool. We did uh, kickboxing. Uh, and, of course, we early on we got Canadian football, if you recall. Along with Australian rules football, um, it was—it was—I uh, don't know how creative it was, but it, it was a lot of fun putting it all together. Some of the programming uh, created some big fans. There's—I understand that even today there is an Australian rules football. I don't know if it's a club or a, what it is in the United States.
0: That first year, you go through a, a lot of growing pains, but you grew fast as the cable universe started to expand. What was the key to that rapid growth?:
1: Yeah, the first thing that we did was going twenty four hours was there were there were people actually betting at uh, the networks that we wouldn't make it for twenty four hours. When we started at seven o'clock Saturday night, we went all the way through to Monday morning, and to my knowledge to this minute that that was the first time anybody had ever, any television had ever gone overnight for all 24 hours, even through, through the times of the, uh, uh, Bobby Kennedy's assassination and uh, all of those major world events, they still the network still signed off at one o'clock. But we, uh, so we were the first ones, we went all the way through a lot of strange programming, but we did it, we stayed on the air
0: all the way through. And yet, it was a bittersweet time for you. About a year in, you were forced out. What happened?
1: December 1980, yes. Early early on, it was clear that uh, we had hired Chet Simmons from uh, NBC and Stuart Eby, of course, was the money man from Getty. And uh, we were like at three points on the compass and always and loggerheads. And, and uh, Stu Evie, obviously the money guy, wrote the rules. And Chet Simmons, the big network guy, thought any ideas that I had about sports were, were crazy because there's no way we, he when he, we hired him, he didn't believe that we were going to get on the air first and that we would ever do 24 hour sports. But uh, he came aboard because uh, Evie wanted somebody from the broadcast industry. Which, with a, you know a solid reputation, and Chet certainly had that after many years at NBC. But we were all—I I would propose something, and Chet would say it can't happen. And Stuart would propose something, and we would both say it can't happen. And Stuart would say, "Well, we're going to do it anyway." And so there's a lot of give and take. But at the end of the day, you know, the entrepreneur generally takes the money and moves on. And uh, they decided. And my last day was December 31st, 1980. And then they gave me a uh, consulting, quote, consulting contract for a couple of years. And then we sold it in 1984. So my day-to-day participation ended in December 1980. And my association with them from a shareholder's point of view ended in 1984. I have a lot of good friends still at ESPN obviously Chris Berman uh, is coming out to do uh, My I had a grandson who passed away some 20 years ago and we've been doing a memorial golf tournament for him every year this is the 20th anniversary and I asked Chris, uh, he, he comes out, he has a place in Maui, I said tell me your schedule and would you stop if we can make this at work and he said absolutely so he's coming out to play golf so I still have lots of friends with within Dick Vitale is still a very close friend and people on campus. Uh, I've known all of the presidents obviously through the time and recently they've, within the past 10 years, I've been back there several times for various and sundry things they've had. They've been uh, very good to me and uh, help me with things. If I need some help for some video, they, Chris and Dick Vital, Bob Lee, they've all done videos for me. Um, so it's, uh, it's fun for me to go back and see how it 's all changed and uh, see there's so many so many amazingly bright young people doing some just some great things uh and it 's something to be proud of i 'm very proud of it
0: How does it make you feel to know that this idea that you had all those years ago fundamentally changed american sports it's
1: it's pretty daunting to think that but i don't i don't really think about that you know people ask me and I'm, I'm sitting here talking to you now and i'm looking at a picture when lee trevino came and played in a golf tournament that i was involved in and he and i were playing we talked about espn that's pretty cool you know things things like that but i i just uh i'm you know anybody anybody can go on online and find all kinds of information and stories about speaking here or there, whatever it might be. But I'm, uh, you know, I don't, I don't wear an ESPN jacket down the street or anything of the kind. But uh, you know, I'm, I'm pleased, and it's, it's kind of an honor to think that I had a little bit to do with it. At the beginning, I had a lot to do with it. Um, and I, I guess the fact that many people, such as Chris Berman and Vital and Chris LaPlaca and Mike Solis and other folks back at, uh, in Bristol, uh, are still friends to this day. They, we, we, we do things. I get back to Bristol periodically, uh, to do prom- promotional things or what have you. Um, this 40th anniversary, we've got a schedule of some events coming up that I'll be involved in. And it, it's nice that they remember and, and it makes me feel pretty good. And it's just, uh, it really, it to me, looking back back at the time, and even looking back, it seems to me that this should have happened, could have happened, even before then. Um, but maybe not the distribution, and the, maybe it was the satellite, and it was the the growth of the cable industry was kind of stagnant. You know, all so many things came together to make it possible to say, "Come on, guys, let's make this work." And and the cable industry, the advertisers. All of the young folks that came to work at ESPN, the the people who dreamed big
0: dreams and wanted to be part of it, uh, makes me feel pretty good. One of your early talent hires was Dick Vitale. You and Dick have uh, something in common. You were both fired right before ESPN. What does your shared success at this brand new enterprise, what does it say about dealing with adversity?
1: Well, I, I just I, I think it, it it's a challenge, but it's if if you let, if a person says, "Well, I'm fired. That's it. I can't do anything else." They have, they shouldn't blame who, whoever it was that they were fired, wherever it was they were fired from. It's their own failure at that point. I'm 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 a I'm an absolutely positive guy that says there is something that we can do. No matter, no matter what, no matter how devastating it might be at the moment, uh, there's something good can come of it. And you know, you hear all of the a door closes and the, one door closes, another door opens, and all of those cliches, but they're real. Uh, I I've been doing a lot of speaking and uh, did a couple of other businesses along the way, and. And uh, just have enjoyed life. I've been, I guess, uh, the entrepreneurial spirit, so to speak. But I, I just, um, I Dick Vitale tells the stories, and I've been on a couple of at a couple of places where he and I were both speaking, and it's just <laughs> talk about fun. That's really fun.
0: What's the most important lesson people can take from your life?
1: You can accomplish whatever you want, whatever you set out to do. When you when you have an idea if you believe in the idea and I tell the kids on college campuses if if you come to me with an idea and you don't have the enthusiasm or the total 100% belief why should I why should I get involved with you but on the other hand if you come to me and you are absolutely enthusiastic and no matter what I say no matter how discouraged I am you're still going to convince me that it's going to work that's that's what that's what you should do i i i believe we can do anything that we set out to do and uh, obviously i'm talking about legally i don't (laughs) don't want mean that in any other way um keep asking questions keep the keep the goal in mind and really they're almost it's almost the same attitude that you try to give a sports team. You've got a goal in mind, execute. And when adversity strikes, don't be discouraged, don't quit. You just have to keep on going and you will win. And you should devote all of your energies to a positive side of getting something done, no matter what it is.
0: Thanks to Lane McGibney and all the good folks at Boutwell Studios for all the TLC required to bring this podcast to life, and audio engineers Joe Beeman and Jonathan W. Hickman. Remember, everyone has a special talent. You just need to identify it, cultivate it, and be willing to pay the price. You, too, can become an American Achiever.